Colson. You are forgiven, brother. Uh, my father told me of a conference that he was at years ago that there were five speakers on the Sunday afternoon and they were told exactly how much time to take. And by the time it came for number five, he had five minutes left. And he said, we'll read a verse together. And he turned them to and read this verse. All that ever came before me were thieves and robbers. <laughs> and he sat down. Here's my question, and um, I'm going to do it first because it's an excellent question. And here we go. If I get a great job, won't God understand if I have to miss a few meetings here and there? Very practical question. So I'm going to go at this kind of backwards and in a maybe unusual way. The first thing that I thought of as I read this question is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, and I quote, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, that is a sanctifying truth that we really all can't get away from. How does it apply in a situation like this? Well, let me answer the question by asking a question. What characteristics constitute a great job? So in your mind as a young Christian, what are you looking for in your definition of a great job? Is it, uh, first of all, what's your goal? Is it uh, climbing the ladder? Is it a lot of money? Is it prominence, preeminence, a lot of things? Um, let me just tell you, and pardon the personal um, reference, but my youngest son, Jeremy, who's in Denver, North Carolina, he moved there to take a really good job, and the job folded. And he went a stretch of time where it was very difficult for them. By the grace of God, he was given a job and at age 35, after working up to it, at age 35, he was given his own Walmart to manage. And it wasn't a Walmart. It was a super Walmart. So after two years of doing that, making a very good income, uh, and losing assistant managers one right after another, and losing 30 pounds, and working 20-hour days, and forgetting what his wife and children looked like, and forgetting what the inside of the Gospel Hall looked like. He called me one day and he said, Dad, what do I do? And I said, well, what are you thinking of doing? He says, tomorrow I'm thinking of handing in my notice. I said, well, let me ask you one question, Jay. With all your giving, with all your doing, is it going to get better? He said, no, it's not. I said, then you've answered your own question. So for the honor of God and for the unity of his family and for his usefulness in that assembly, he walked away from a $100,000 a year job. He couldn't find work there. And for the last 13 months, he has driven eight and a half hours each way on weekends to come up and live with my wife and I. 
to go to work for my son-in-law, hoping to work that job up to the point that he could move his family to Indiana. Needless to say, we were thrilled to have all the grandchildren in the same town. I couldn't imagine. To have him as a help in the assembly, I was hoping and praying. It didn't work out. He didn't see his way clear to move everybody north. However, out of a clear blue sky, he got a call from Walmart. And they said, listen, we've started you. We've started a new banking center where in Charlotte, North Carolina, we are going to run the operations of all of Walmart. And we want you to be a manager. So that's where he is back home. Never had to move nine to five. No nights, no weekends, bonuses. Why? Because he honored God. Simple as that. Because God said in Samuel, them that honor me, I will honor. So, dear friend, I'm not trying to minimize your question in any way, but your great job could be a test from God. It could be a test of your loyalty to your Savior. So, I would say this for your question. Don't look in your life to... Find anything to make excuses for you to miss meetings. Because we are to sanctify ourselves to the Lord. Do not allow things in your lives that would draw you away, but allow things in your lives that will allow you to bring the most honor and glory to God. Let me give you three words to remember, because this is so excellent for the lives of young people. Now, this is a King James Version message. I'm going to read you a verse from Joshua 1. Here's a young man challenged with having to take over leading Israel. And his heart and his soul and his mind and his will were just numb thinking of the challenge. And here's what God says to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So prosperity and success is tied directly to obedience to the word of God. And by the way, in the authorized version, this is the only time in the Bible that you read the word success. So that means that God looks at success totally differently than the world does. Now, here's two more words. In Isaiah 57, 15, we have the only time in the King James that we read the word eternity. And in Luke 23, verse 33, we have the only time in the King James that we read the word Calvary. So let's put these together. As a young Christian, the only success that you are going to have for eternity is what you do with the claims of Calvary. So that's how you should think about answering this question. It's not the minutia of missing meetings. It's the importance of glorifying God. Because if you honor the Lord, he'll honor you. Let's look at 1 John chapter 2. And by the way, I, I echo what Phyllis said about the Christians here. A wonderful weekend. You have worked so hard for us. And I think I can say this for Stephen and John, that uh, 
I think what you should do is fly Phil back sometime and just give him a question-and-answer conference. That answer he gave unfinished, Stephen and I caught each other's eyes and we went, So, Phil, you may be back to answer some questions. First, we're going to have to hurry through this, but I hope this is a help to the young believers. 1 John 2, 17. 1 John 2, verse 17. And this is going to follow directly to what our brother has been ministering. 1 John 2 and 17. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Notice what that does not say. It does not say he or she that knoweth the will of God abideth forever. It's he or she that doeth the will of God. Now, I apologize to any of our Canadian believers that are still here because the only other time I gave this, and Dave T. and I shared the gospel meeting at that conference, it was in Sarnia in May. And I wasn't planning on using this, but the Lord laid this back on my heart very heavily for the young people here. And I'd like to talk to you about the will of God in your life. Because it's one of the biggest questions that young people ask. And it's one of the most difficult questions that we get asked by young people. It's very hard for us to give answers. Because it's usually asked concerning a choice of a husband or wife. Or a university or a career a job, uh, a location in which to live, an assembly in which to fellowship. And over and over, young people have struggled with, how do I know the will of God? But what we have read is, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So it would not seem that God has left us wondering what his will is. How could he expect us to do it if we don't know it? I came across a quote just recently God's will is not something hidden that needs to be found. It is something revealed that needs to be done. So when I was thinking about this and looking into this subject, I was amazed that there are 21 times in the New Testament where God specifically and directly states his will. And we read right there in black and white, this is the will of God. So we are going to blitz through seven of these. I'm not sure why I ended up with all sevens this weekend, but... That's just how it shook out. So we're going to look at some of these. And here's the principle I'd like to apply to this. And I hope you understand where I'm coming from. If God has told us his will, then honestly, he expects us to do it. So if in my life I am not doing the little things, how can I expect God to show me the big things? If I'm not obedient in little things that he has plainly stated, no wonder I struggle with the big things. And the principle is from uh, Matthew 25, where the Lord goes away and gives his men a certain amount. And, And we know what happens when he returns. And he says to two of them, you have been faithful in little things, and I'm going to reward you with big things. And it's again 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. You honor me, I will honor you. So let's look very quickly. And I know we have a lot of note takers here. So we're going to go through through these quickly. First is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And these are seven times where we will read the stated, simple, plain word of God. I am just going to go through these quickly. 
because I want to give Brother Stephen his time. 2 Corinthians 8, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality or generosity. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Here it is. And this they did, not as we hoped, but they first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. So the first heading here is a selfless life. A selfless life. Paul is telling the Corinthians about the Macedonian Christians. They were going through a great trial of affliction. They were in deep poverty. And yet they still had spiritual joy and liberality and generosity to give to others. There were two secrets to their generosity. In verse 1, we read about the grace of God. But the second secret in verse 5 was the attitude of their hearts. They were givers even though they didn't have much. It reminds me of um, Exodus 35, when God said to Israel, now listen, we are going together to build a tabernacle. And this is going to be a place where we will meet. I will meet with you. And I'm going to give you the plans. Here's the blueprints. And I'm going to tell you exactly the materials, how much of everything and where it goes. And in Exodus 35, we read over and over again, whosoever is of a willing heart, Everyone whose heart stirred him up, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted. All the women who were wise-hearted, whose hearts stirred them up, they brought a willing offering unto the Lord. Dear young Christian, God expects you, his will for your life is that you live selflessly. That's his will. It's kind of like the difference between a sausage and eggs. Phil enjoyed his sausage at lunch. So did I. But you know, eggs is a daily job for the chicken. Sausage is a lifetime commitment for the pig. Chicken clucks about looking for tomorrow so they can lay another egg or two. But the poor pig had to give everything for us to enjoy that sausage. And for a Savior who gave us everything, is it unfair for Him to demand everything from us? A selfless life. Um, Here's a quote from William Bradford. He was the leader of the Plymouth colonists in Bedford, Mass., 1620 to 1647. And he says this, Of all the influences that cause men and women to make wrong choices... Selfishness is no doubt the strongest. Where selfishness is, the Spirit of God is not. Pretty strong. Another thing that hit me hard when I was thinking about this was the kids were watching one day, they were watching the Christmas Carol. And it's Dickens' story of uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. And it's the one that was uh, produced in 1985 with George C. Scott. And if you have seen that one, it is without a doubt, a classic. It, it, I am not a fan of movies. Uh, I, I, I run away from movies. 
But as I was watching that with the kids, my grandkids, there was a moment where the, the spirit of Christmas past took Ebenezer to take a look at the life that he had squandered. And she said this to him. Boy, it just jumped out at me. I, I, I stopped it. I backed it up. Kid said, what are you doing? I said, I have to write that down. Here's what she said. You have showed me what you have gained. Now let me show you what you have lost. To borrow Phil's words, that's huge. Because it could be that with all the things that we waste our time on, someday the Lord Jesus might say to me, you have showed me what you've gained. Now let me show you what you've lost. So first of all, a selfless life. Quickly, Galatians chapter 1. We're not going to spend that much time on all of them. Some of these I'm just going to read and make a comment and we're going to go. Galatians 1 verse 3. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present, and we could tuck in the other word that Paul Use, oh, he does right here. It's the other place that he doesn't. From this present evil world. Young folks, don't ever lose fact that we're living in an evil world. And here it is. According to the will of God the Father. So what is the will of God our Father in connection with us in a present evil world? And it's that we live a spiritual life. God does not want us to live carnally. He wants us to live a spiritual life guided by the Spirit of God. We mentioned yesterday, don't you understand, James says, that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Our brother yesterday mentioned the teachings from 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14. And brethren who have been elders on oversights and bringing people into assemblies have had to deal with those issues. And some people just can't accept it. And at the end of uh, chapter 14, Paul basically says, here's why people don't obey these commands from the Lord. They're not spiritual. Now, let me ask you this. Do you know somebody in your Christian life that you would say, as soon as you think of them, that is a spiritual person? And if you do, and we all do, what makes them spiritual? It's simply because they have allowed their lives to be controlled, Romans chapter 8, by the power of the Spirit of God. Next one's in Ephesians chapter 6. The next statement of God's will is Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service. That simply means not doing your best while the boss is watching as men pleasers. But as servants of Christ. Here, here we go. Doing the will of God from the heart. So the lesson here is to do the best job you possibly can doing it for the Lord. Not just to please whoever's over you, but to do it for him. Whatsoever you do, do for the glory of God. There's a Latin phrase that's come back into vogue, Coram Deo. And it simply means this, before the eyes, before the face of the Lord. And, and that's the best life we can live, before the face of God. 
And here we're talking about servants or slaves. And the Lord Jesus called himself a bond slave. That was a fairly negative term. Slavery was terrible. But the Lord Jesus referred to himself as a bond slave. Why? Because he lived his life before the face of God. And as we've already heard, he could say, I do always those things which bring pleasure to my father. So God expects us. His will is that we live a servant's life. Now, the next one's in Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. And here it is. That you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. I have called this a, a serious life. Now, there is nobody who likes to laugh more than me. And my willingness to laugh and to have fun has gotten me into some trouble at times. Laughter really can be a very good medicine. The Bible kind of says that, a merry heart. And there are people sitting in this audience today that I'll confess to you I have laughed hysterically with. But all that aside, when we get down to what really counts, God wants us to be serious Christians. And our brother has already ministered to that. So how much time do I waste? The Bible says we have to redeem the time. Why do we have to redeem time? Because time's precious. And seconds slip by into minutes, into hours, and they're gone. We'll never get them back. Paul, at the end of his life in Philippians 4, verse 13, said this, I have not yet become the Christian that God has saved me to become. But this one thing I do, I forget the things which are behind, and I strain to reach those things which are before me. I press forward for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's a serious Christian. There was no more serious Christian than the Apostle Paul. And we have all met Christians who not only were spiritual, they were serious Christians. They took their Christian life seriously. They pray, they study, they learn as much about God as they can. And they try to live their lives controlled by the Spirit of God to live their Savior to others. Albert Schweitzer, the great scientist and philosopher, said this, and I don't believe the man ever had a hope of salvation from what I've read. But he said this, never give your life up for something that ends when your life does. And yet most of the people that we know in an unsaved world, that's exactly what they're doing. I'll make you smile with this one. One of my dearest friends on this planet is a nefarious scoundrel by the name of Dan Shutt. Dan and I have had the privilege of having 12 weekends together, mostly for young people. And we've four times been invited to Arlington, Washington. Some of you are here. It's just a remarkable young people's conference. So once Dan was uh, up speaking and I was sitting right below him looking at my notes and he was laboring, um, struggling a bit, trying to get young people not to spin their wheels 
not to waste their time, not to flit around from one occupation to the other, uh, not to become a professional student, uh, just going through years and not making much of their life. And then finally he stopped and he says, okay, guys, it's this way. He says, if you're 35, God does not expect you to be sitting in the basement of your parents' home in your BVDs, drinking Red Bull and playing Grand Theft Auto. And the place went dead. I looked up at him in shock. And he's standing there with that little smirk, crooked grin he has. And then the place exploded. It just, there was laughter for three minutes when everybody got it. So I said to him afterwards, I said, how long did you practice that line? He said, six months. (laughs) But he got his point across. And I would follow what our brother Phil has just said. It is amazing how much time I waste. And God asks me, the will of God, as we have read, is that I stand complete perfectly mature, a finished product as far as this world goes. That's God's will for me. And that requires that I have a serious life. The next one is in 1 Thessalonians 4. And Brother Phil has already quoted this. This is a sanctified life, and we have just heard an excellent message on sanctification. There's nothing I'm going to try to add to it. But 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1 says this. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and please God, so you would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus, and here's a commandment, and the will of God. For this is the will of God, even your progressive practical sanctification, that you should abstain from anything that even sniffs of sexual immorality. That's the will of God. So very clearly, God is telling us, do not participate in any way with the moral evil around us. A year or so ago at the Vandergrift Conference, Brother Sandy was there. And um, you know Sandy. When Sandy takes a platform, you sit up, you wake up, you get ready to listen, you get ready to learn. And I've known Sandy for many years. When I was a medical student, I worked in his office with him. He's an amazing man, but here's what he said. He was talking about desensitization, which I believe is Satan's current greatest tool. He is desensitizing the people of God against sin. It's everywhere, including in our pockets. And Sandy said this, and I almost collapsed when I heard him say this. I quote, I am more comfortable around sin right now than I have ever been in my life. I'm going to read that again. 
I am more comfortable around sin right now than I have ever been in my life. Dr. Sandy Higgins. Why is that? It's the old story of the frog in water. We've been sitting in the water on the top of the stove and the water started out cool. And by the time it has got piping hot, we have become immune to it. And young men, I need to just follow what Phil said. Fact, no. Men, I need to follow what Phil said. Every man here. You are two or three clicks and a few keystrokes away from what Mr. Darby calls the sink of corruption. It's so easy. It is so easy. It is addicting. I deal with addictions every day of my life in my practice. This is one of the strongest addictions I have ever seen. I have seen families completely destroyed. And I have heard of assemblies that have been affected. And I have heard of elders who have sat together and wept because of this sin. God says, touch not the unclean. Touch not. The great spiritual leader of this world, Pope Francis, said this. The ideal mode of life for every person is that each person must live with an individual conscience. As Dan would say, that's rubbish. Because that's the end of judges. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. The way I live is not up to my conscience. It's up to my Savior. It's up to what he has plainly told me. Casting Crowns has a song, and this is what they say. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. When you give yourself away, people never crumble in a day. It's bit by little bit by little bit by little bit. Christians don't usually crash and burn. They don't fall off the end of the world on a Monday when they were doing well on Sunday. It's an incremental change, a shift. And that's why conferences are so important, because what is happening this weekend is a course correction. I had my course corrected significantly this weekend by listening to my brethren. And God's will for my life is that I live a sanctified life. And I work at it every day with the power of the Spirit of God. John Owen says this. Be killing sin. Or sin will be killing you. The next one is in 1 Thessalonians 5. And Stephen, I'm going to be done here in just a moment. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. First Thessalonians 5.18, And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. The will of God is that I live a grateful, thankful life. Most of our prayers, and we heard an excellent message from Stephen yesterday, most of our prayers are what we would call grantfulness. Lord, grant me this. Lord, grant me that. Lord, I need this. Please answer my prayer. This is what I want. This is what I need. I read about a little boy that said, I asked God for a bike. But I know doesn't, God doesn't work that way, so I stole a bike and asked for forgiveness. 
And that's more, that is often more how we pray. We're always asking God to grant us something. But here's a steadfast life. And dear young believer, if you want to be a steadfast Christian, you have a grateful heart. And you be thankful. It says here, in everything give thanks. The good, the bad, the high, the low, the happy, the sad. The will of the Lord is that we be grateful in every situation because he is with us in every storm. Now, there's two ways to do this. Two totally different ways to give thanks to God. Number one, I can look at it this way. There's always somebody worse off than myself. So for that, I'm thankful. That's the old proverb. I complained because I had no shoes until I saw the man who had no feet. That's one way to look at it. There's always somebody worse off than me. But here's a better way to look at it. God himself has drawn up the plans for my life. And I'm under his control. And if this is what he wants for this present time, then I have to be thankful for it. Because I trust my God. He will never fail me. He will never leave me astray. Finally, and this is the last one, it's a separated life. And since I just got my pages completely out of order, it is in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and then with this I'll be done. God expects that we be different from the people around us. So look at 1 Peter 4, verse 1, 6. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. So make up your mind to live these uh, wills of God. For he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached, also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So here we have the will of God, verse 2, that we do not go back to and live the life that he saved us from. Paul said, if I build again those things that I have destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. And you could apply that in a lot of aspects of life. So here's a separated life. I came across this quote, why do we try so hard to fit in? when we have been called to be different. Now, my time is gone, but I want to leave you. I want to leave you just two more quotes. A man by the name of Chip Ingram said this, the most miserable place to live as a Christian is with one foot in the world. And then this quote, and I know you've heard this because I think this arose from a popular song, the greatest cause of agnosticism today is Christians who confess him with their lips but deny him with their life. This is what un an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. 
So God has asked us to live a separated life and to be different. So very quickly, if you didn't get these all, he wants us to live a selfless life, a heart that's willingly devoted to God and to his kingdom, a spiritual life controlled by the spirit, not the flesh, one that seeks to fully understand the word of God and live under his control. He wants us to live a servant's life, a life that is opposite to the world around us, a serious life. He wants us to live a serious life. Life is not a game. It is not a series of accomplishments or degrees. It is not how quickly or how high one can climb the ladder of success. God is far more interested in character than he is in credentials. He wants us to live a sanctified life. You and I have been set apart by God for his glory and for his purpose. A steadfast life, a life based on humble gratitude of what God has given me and his purpose for me. He must be the entire foundation of my life. And finally, a separated life, a life lived differently than the world. I must not try to be like them. I must not struggle to fit in. God has called me to be different. I am in Satan's territory. And my friendship with this world makes me an enemy of God. With this, I close. Um, In 1997, my father-in-law and I went to a funeral in London, Ontario for a friend and a man of God that I admired with all my heart, cut down early, Paul Kember, who touched a lot of lives. And I had never seen this before, but young people, I'm going to leave this with you as I step down on the front of the little brochure that they had made up with his picture and the date of his birth and salvation and death was this simple little phrase. And I close my remarks by borrowing this from Paul's testimony. A faithful life is not a blaze of sudden glory won, but just an adding up of days in which God's will was done. 446, please.